The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. So... Um, If you're on our email list, you uh, probably got an email this past week uh, uh, communicating that we are taking a pause from our uh, seven-sermon series on the the, uh, churches in the book of Revelation uh, to focus on the subject of sorrow, sudden loss, and the welcoming arms of Jesus Christ. And uh, today uh, and the week behind us is a time for us, especially in our Christ Presbyterian community, uh, to weep and to lament and to be sad and to do those things together as a community as best as we can. And uh, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about how there's a time to laugh and there's also a time to weep. And so we really need to be careful not to sanitize over, not to whitewash, not to beautify things that are gut-wrenching, ugly, and wrong. One of those things is death. Death doesn't belong. And we want to talk about that today. Uh, This past Thursday, we said a temporary goodbye to uh, a young teenage boy named Sam from our community who battled depression and in a moment of vulnerability and isolation took his own life. And uh, so we're changing our plans today uh, for a lot of reasons, one of which is because of what the experts tell us, and it's this, that the best prevention uh, for these kinds of tragedies is not to not talk about it, but to talk about it, to lean in, to be honest, to not shove it under the rug, to not move on, but to talk about it. In the United States alone, there are a half a million suicides attempt, suicide attempts every single year. That's one in approximately every 600 people. There are more than that number of people in this room right now. One suicide happens every 17 minutes. It's the third leading cause of death for people between the ages of 15 and 25. It's the sixth leading cause of death for people between the ages of 5 and 14. There are a couple of primary reasons why people reach this place that they feel is a point of no return. One is theological. The story of Christianity and the story of your Christianity and, your, and mine, the story of your faith and the story of my faith does not begin in the book of John. It begins in the book of Genesis, all the way back to the garden uh, where the fall happened 
and with the fall, chaos, where the whole creation ever since that time has been groaning, where things have not been right, the world has gone wrong. Romans 8 describes it as a creation that now groans, eagerly anticipating the freedom that has not yet been put upon us, but that is yet to come through the resurrection of Christ and the renewal of all things. Revelation chapter 21 describes it as a world that's filled with death, mourning, crying, and pain. That's our current reality. And so to be overwhelmed, to despair even of life, is not abnormal. It's normal. It's a normal part of the human experience, at the very least, to be sad and to be deeply sad much of the time. That's normal because of the way that things are. And for some, that leads tragically to darker places. The Psalms, which are the best representation of how God has taught us to pray in addition to the Lord's Prayer, is filled with statements about a world that's gone wrong, and these are honest statements, they're bold statements, they're statements that are meant to be shared in the context of community. There's honesty and lament, like, how long, O Lord, are you going to forget me forever? Words like, no refuge remains for me. Words like, my strength is dried up, or my bones are disjointed, or I cry day and night, or trouble is near. This is just a sampling of excerpts from how the Holy Spirit has taught us to pray prayers of honesty and sorrow in community. So, the reasons are first and foremost theological, but they're also mental and emotional. There is a reality that many of us wrestle with, one out of every three or so of us in this room, either you or the person to your left or the person to your right is likely to suffer from some form of mental illness right now. And in talking to several professionals in psychiatry, psychology, Christian counseling, discovered something that I didn't realize this past week, and that is that most people who take their own lives do not want to die. They don't want to die. What they want is for the pain to stop. And have reached a point where they cannot envision a pathway for the pain to stop. And one of uh, the local counselors uh, David Thomas, who specializes uh, in uh, especially adolescent boys, says that despair in particular is when a person reaches the point where they believe that their pain exceeds their resources with which to face that pain. And so, my purpose this morning is not to pretend like I'm a specialist in psychiatric matters or in mental illness for that matter. Uh, my purpose is to pastor us through this kind of season. And so I'm going to try to do that by helping us uh, engage with what is not true 
and to understand and realize what's not true, to engage with and understand and realize what is true, and to know what God is like. So, those are my tasks this morning, and so I'd like to first help us to know what is not true. What is not true is this statement. To be overwhelmed with life in a fallen world is not normal. That is not true. That is false. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, no temptation, no trial has overtaken you except what is common. Common. These are common things. And and one of the, the lies of mental illness in particular is, I am the only one. I am all alone. Nobody could possibly understand this. There is so much shame in this because of the uniqueness of what I am going through. And so, for strugglers, the first thing that's important to say is this is not true. You are not all alone in your struggle. The Bible says that all creation has been made subject to decay and to groaning because of the fall. That includes things like the human body. That includes things like the human brain. In the same way that you can get heart disease or liver disease, you can get brain disease. Your brain can become ill. And so the task of a church especially, servants of the great physician who heals every disease, every malady, is to do whatever we need to do to get to the point where we can be as open and honest and transparent about mental illness as we are about the flu, back pain, heart disease, and aging. De-stigmatize the thing. It is a normal part of fallen life. The statistics prove it. And the Bible gives us plenty of examples, including a depressed Savior who was completely perfect, and yet whose soul was so overwhelmed with sorrow that it was to the point of death, that he sweated drops of blood. He was so distressed. Jeremiah and Job both cursed the day that they were born. They didn't even want to live. Elijah asked God to take his life. Jonah did the same thing. King David talked about how his soul was downcast. Jesus Christ, in verse 3 of the text that was just read to us, is described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so, what I want to say to the strugglers among us is that sadness is a healthy emotion. It's not something to be repressed. It's not something to be denied. It's not something to be hidden. It's not something to be ashamed of. Sadness is not only a healthy emotion, it is a holy emotion. Jesus Christ, standing at the gravesite of one of His close friends, weeps, gushes 
tears. He weeps. He's perfect. The more mature you are as a spiritual person, the more your tears will flow. The more you will find yourself sad and lamenting over things that are broken and fallen. It's also an emotion that's meant to be stewarded with honesty. Bringing our sadness into the context of community is essential for healing. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. I never even noticed this until somebody pointed it out to me last week. Paul says this, God comforts the depressed, and He comforted me through the sending of Titus. God's medicine for my depression was another human being. Through the sending of Titus. You know, anybody in here, and I know a lot of you have been and are in recovery programs for chemical addiction, substance addiction, alcoholism, you know, all kinds of struggles, grief groups. And those of you who have experienced healing, I don't know any of you, as I've listened to your story, who hasn't said that being able to own and name and speak about my struggle, my addiction, my sorrow in the context of other people was what saved my life. You know, God says even into paradise, when life is perfect, it's not good to be alone. And so, how much more do we need to be surrounded when life is not perfect, when things are are broken and fractured and, and frail? Satan wants us to do the opposite. He wants us to hide our struggles and hide our sorrows, and He wants to identify them. He wants us to identify our struggles and sorrows as shame. And shame is something that needs to be hidden, not brought into community. It needs to be covered over, not brought into the light. That's what the liar wants us to think. That's what the one who is full of it wants us to think, is that it is good to be alone when the things that you really should be hiding, and that's not what the gospel says. You know, recovery programs are so successful because of the transparency and because of the community and because of the shared conviction that the struggle is real and the struggle is common. It's real and it's common. By His wounds, it says, we're healed. Verse 5, That means a lot of things. That means we're forgiven of our sins, but it also means that we have a partner, a paraclete, someone coming alongside of us, and someone who's already gone ahead of us in suffering, in loss, in bereavement. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weakness because He's been tested and tried in every way, yet without sin. Brene Brown, uh, the the well-known psychiatrist, says that the two most healing words for the shame that we feel are, 
Me too. Me too. Jesus presents himself in the scriptures as a physician, as one who forgives all of our sins, who heals all of our diseases, who crowns us with love and compassion, and who redeems our lives from the pit, and who will ultimately satisfy us with good things. He presents himself as a physician, not who came for the healthy, not not one who came for the healthy, but one who came for the sick. Not one who came for the righteous, but one who came for sinners. What does this mean about the church? If the church is his home and he's a physician, then it means that we are meant to function as the greatest hospital on earth. For things like sickness and sorrow and shame, the church of Jesus Christ is meant to, to be beyond compare as a healing place where there's a shared conviction that the struggle is real and the struggle is common. And the rub of that is we are all simultaneously patients and healers. We're both. And in fact, in the same way that Jesus says, by my wounds I'm going to heal you, your wounds actually have healing qualities in the lives of the people around you because you get to say to somebody, me too, and, and, and me too are the two most healing words that a struggling person can hear from another struggling person. If you are hurting, if you are experiencing darkness, I want to go on record as begging you to talk to somebody about it. You can start here. We are not afraid or shy or, or hesitant to receive any burden and to mobilize the resources that we have at our church in order to help you bear those burdens so you don't have to bear them alone because you're not meant to bear them alone. You can start, if you don't know who to go to, come talk to me before or after a service or in the middle of one. Talk to anybody who stands behind these tables or the tables up in the balcony during communion any week. We do it every week. You can, t- you can grab anybody. And that person can get you to another person to help you get on whatever ever pathway is necessary to uniquely address the uniqueness of your sorrow. But I beg you to embrace the reality that it's not good to be alone, that it is a complete lie, that you're supposed to hide whatever you're struggling with and not burden somebody else. That's a privilege, to receive and to help bear somebody else's burden. The second thing that is not true, and this is where the church as a hospital needs to be great. We need to be great at living this out. The other thing that is not true is that a grieving period has limits, has a shelf life, six months, and then it's time to move on. No, it's never time to move on, especially in a situation like this. Losing a child is next level grief. It is something that 
a parent is not supposed to get over because it was never supposed to happen the way that God set things up. Parents are not meant to bury their children. And so, a grief plan for parents who lose a child is not a six-month plan. It's a lifetime plan for a church. Matthew chapter 2, it talks about loud lamentation going on in Israel, Rachel weeping for her children, and how she refused to be comforted because they are no more. She refused to be comforted, this grieving mother, not because there's something wrong with her, but because there's something right with her. This slide is um, a picture of sculpture called Melancholy by uh, a sculptor named Albert Georgie. And this was posted, uh, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, uh, by somebody on social media on National Bereavement Day. And this is a direct quotation from a parent who had lost their child. We may look as if we carry on with our lives as before. We may even have times of joy and happiness. Everything may seem normal, but this emptiness is how we feel all the time. One father who lost his son, when describing to me what it felt like to lose his son, it says that my heart was ripped out that day. My heart was taken out of my chest. Rick and Kay Warren uh, are in pastoral ministry in Orange County, California, and uh, it's the well-known story of their son who took his life at age 27. Uh, and uh, Kay Warren uh, posted uh, some reflections at the one-year anniversary of their son's death. He had mental illness. He took his own life. And she wrote this, his mother, still grieving one year later, said, as the one-year anniversary of our son's death approaches, I've been shocked by some comments indicating that perhaps I should be ready to move on. I have to tell you, the old Rick and Kay are gone. They're never coming back. We will never be the same again. Our son took his life. We are scarred. It is not clean grief. There is regret horror. My son was part of me. A part of me is no longer here. How can I be the same? There were five of us. Now there are four. Trauma changes you. I can't ever go back to who I was. And so what is a community to do with this next level grief that is not going away and that should not? go away. Not say no anything, dance around it, absolutely not. Lean into it. Speak of it. The truth will set everyone free. Oftentimes, what, 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 what somebody who hasn't experienced this level of tragedy will do is subconsciously try to resolve their own anxiety by either avoiding the person who cannot and will not get past their grief 
or by saying things that just aren't appropriate, like Job's counselors did. And I'm convinced that Job's counselors were less concerned with comforting Job and a lot more concerned with comforting themselves because it made them nervous to be around such pain. Thou shalt not do that. So what do we do? A couple of things. Offer eulogies. The eulogies don't the eulogies don't have to stop and they shouldn't stop after the benediction is pronounced at the funeral. The eulogies should continue. You know, one grieving mother several years past the loss of her son said to me these words this past week, I cannot move on. What has been put on me is a life sentence without parole. And the best thing that people can do to help me is to keep talking to me about my son. Share your memories. Share them often. Laugh with me about the funny things he did. Cry with me about how sad it is that he's not here and that we have an empty chair at mealtimes. Talk to me about how he was interesting to you. Convince me that I am not all alone in bearing the responsibility of keeping his memory and his legacy alive. Help me know that you are helping us do that too. I think another thing that we can learn from this is that eulogies should not begin after death. They should begin long before we die. I should be catching you doing good all the time. We should be encouraging each other and building each other up all the time. I should be telling you how kind you are and how funny you are, and you should be telling me whatever it is that you see in me that is a reflection of the image of God, and we should be doing it often. Because that is actually what establishes the kind of environment that enables people when they hit their time of grief to trust that I can be real, that I don't have to hide this, that I can be honest, that I can speak it straight up. See, there's some cultivation of the soil before, you know, the storm comes <laughs> that then makes it much, much easier to be completely honest about the tornadoes in our hearts and not feel like we have to hide because of the counsel of the liar and the father of lies. What is true? Here's what's true. If Sam could speak to us today, he would say this, please do not do what I did. Please do not do what I did. I was not thinking clearly when I did what I did. It did not dawn on me in the moment the impact that, that it would have on the people that I love. It did not dawn on me in the moment that the world is going to miss some very special things about me, and I took those things from the world. It did not dawn on me that, that removing my sorrow from the world would also be accompanied by the removal of my love from the world.
It didn't dawn on me in the moment that there were scores of people that were here for me, that would have responded at the drop of a hat if I had reached out and told them what I was struggling with. You know, Pastor David Filson, to illustrate this point at the funeral, looked around at, at, at the guests and said, if any of you in here is an educator, uh, a friend of the family, uh, a, a person who has a heart for young people, who if you were called at any given time, any time of the week, by a child in distress, that you, wouldn't drop, that you would drop everything that you were doing to respond immediately, if you would please stand. And roughly 80% of the room stood. That's the reality. The liar wants you to think nobody's going to stand. Nobody's going to care for you. Nobody's going to be there. That's what the liar wants us to think. We are surrounded by an invisible cloud of witnesses, but we're also surrounded by a very visible one. I'll tell you this as well. You know, we're a, we're a church, you know, we, we talk about how Christ Prez has a church that's for all schools and a, and a school that's for all churches, and those things are true. You know, Christ Prez Church has somewhere between 30 and 40 schools represented in our, our kids and youth ministries and family ministries. Um, but I think it, it is very fair to say that no matter where you are affiliated school-wise, you would have been so proud to be part of the church that is in partnership with the school that bears its name, Christ Presbyterian Academy. One of the things that Christ Pres Academy does really well is hard difficult things. They've had the sad misfortune and unspeakable privilege of walking with a lot of families who've been through unspeakable grief. But you could add to that the pastoral staff, David and Todd and Buzz and Jen and, and, and others have been completely amazing, as has Mallory and Kyle and the children's and student staff as well as the volunteers, as well as the bereavement team, as well as, as well as, as well as. This is a community that does hard really well. And so I would say, please, step forward and speak of your pain if you have it, and let us share your burden. You are not meant to be alone. Here's another thing that's true that Sam would tell us that the most important sentence that has ever been written was read to you just a few minutes ago. And that sentence is this. The Son of God was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of all of us, but He's also laid on Him all of our iniquity. There's not one thing that God has overlooked and left untended to as far as your sin and as far as your sorrows are concerned. Sam would want 
to tell you, just as much as He would want you to tell you, please don't do what I did. He would also want to tell you that there is only one sin that is not pardonable, and this is not it. The one sin that is pardonable is spoken of in Matthew chapter 12, and it's called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what it means when you simplify it down to its basic definition is to say no to the witness of the Holy Spirit that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again but specifically Christ has died and has risen and will come again for you. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you've not put your trust on me instead of yourself or other resources, you're against me. That's the one thing that is unpardonable is not to receive the pardon of Jesus Christ and to go into eternity in that reality. That is not a description of Sam. I've been asked several times this past week, is this the unpardonable sin? No. No. I don't care what you've been taught elsewhere. With the authority of Holy Scripture behind me, I just have to say this as forcefully as I can say, those churches and those pastors are flat wrong. Wrong. and have heaped with bad theology such immense heavy burdens on families. Are there any examples in Scripture of a forgiven person who took their own life? Yeah, Samson. Judges chapter 16, Samson took his own life and the life of many others all at the same time. And in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, There's the name Samson right there in the middle of all the other names, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rahab and others who are identified as the hall of fame of those who believe. A person's life and eternity cannot be reduced and should not and must not be reduced down to a single moment and a single lapse of judgment. That's not the gospel. There's nothing of Jesus in that. Salvation is by grace through faith for Billy Graham. Salvation is by grace for faith for Sam. You know, David Filson at the funeral um, gave us a gift, showed to us a kiss from God when he held up Sam's favorite Bible, which was his action Bible. It's like the Bible in comic strip form. And he opened it up to the story of Lazarus, where Jesus spoke into the tomb of the dead man, and and Lazarus came out of the tomb alive. And then David said, but wait, that's not all. And then he turned the page to the next story, and it was the story of when Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them for to such is the kingdom of heaven. Romans 8 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. And at the end of Romans 8, in case we don't fully believe the no condemnation part, it also says, and it gushes, there is no separation. Nothing in all creation, no height, no depth, no width, nothing, no power, not even yourself, nothing in all creation will ever be able, will ever have the power to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. God's emotion toward depression, toward self-harm, His dominant emotion is not anger, it's compassion. It's not judgment, it's mercy. It's not disappointment, it's welcome. Know what God is like. That's, that's where we'll finish. The story of another son's voluntary death is what makes this voluntary death healable, redeemable, restorable, resurrectable, renewable. Jesus volunteered to die, not to decrease His own sorrows, but to increase His own sorrows, that our sorrows would be taken off of us forever and ever and ever. The Father's heart was ripped out. The Father got melancholy. The Son of God on the cross bore our sins, but I, I think it's so important to recognize from Isaiah here that He also bore our griefs and our sorrows and carried them. He was smitten by God, it says, and afflicted. With His wounds, we are healed. And then in verse 11, it, it goes on to say, out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, He shall see and be satisfied. Satisfied. How could he possibly be satisfied after he's bearing sins and sorrows like that because of the outcome that it's all accomplishing? 100% recovery for all of his children who have gone astray and lost their way. One of my favorite children's books is called The Runaway Bunny written by Margaret Wise Brown, pictures by Clement Hurd. That's how we used to introduce it to our girls. The Runaway Bunny by Margaret Wise Brown, pictures by Clement Hurd. <laughs> Starts this way. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I am running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. And the bunny says, well, if you come after me, then I'm going to become a fish and I'm going to swim away. And the mother says, well, then I'll become a fisherman and I'll catch you. Bunny says, well, then I'm going to become a rock on a mountain. And then the mother says, well, then I'm going to become a mountain climber and I'm going to come and get you. And the bunny says, well, then I'll become a crocus in a hidden garden. And she says, well, I'll become a skilled gardener and I will find you. Well, then I'll become a bird and fly away. Well, then I'll become a tree that you can come home to. Well, then I'm going to become a sailboat and sail far away. Well, I'll become, a, I'll become the wind and steer you back home. Well, I'm going to join the circus and be on the flying trapeze. Well, then 
I'll become a tightrope walker and I will catch you. And then the little boy bunny says, well, shucks, I must just, I might, I might as well just become a little boy and run into a house. And then she says, well, then I will become your mother and catch you in my arms. We all, like little bunnies, have gone astray. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquities and the sorrows of us all. In life and in death, he will run after you because you are his little bunny. Psalm 23 says, in the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. His goodness and his mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sandra McCracken, in one of uh, her more recent songs, has this lyric, and it goes like this. It's not okay, or I'm sorry, if it's not okay, then it is not the end. And this is not okay. So I know this is not the end. You know, Sam's mother, Lanya, twice last week said to me, and I imagine to others as well, this feels like I'm in a dream that I'm going to wake up from. And one of the most unspeakable privileges that I have as a man who knows what the Word of God says is that's exactly what it is. It's a dream that you're going to wake up from. It's a nightmare that is going to come untrue. The truest story is the happily ever after story. In fact, that is a story so true that it is impossible for a child of God to escape it. This is not okay, and so we know this is not the end. And so we come to the Lord's table where every week we get to pronounce two eulogies. A eulogy for the deceased, Christ has died in order to bear our transgressions, in order to bear our griefs. Christ is risen. He's alive. A living eulogy. It's not wasn't He wonderful, it's isn't He wonderful. And won't He be wonderful when He comes again and makes all things new? and takes that creature, Satan, who feels so big to us right now, but in reality, put next to Jesus Christ, he is pathetic, he is small, and he is terminal. But God is giving him such a long leash, it seems. Satan will hang himself on that leash, and we will be there to see it. 
and any anger we have in the meantime is right and good. It is the one vindication that we ought to look forward to with glee. John chapter 6, verses 50 and 51. I'll, I'll take us to the table with this. Jesus says, This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world and for my little bunnies is my flesh. Pray with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. So as the pastors and elders and deacons and deaconesses and others are coming forward to serve at the tables, uh, I'd like to invite everybody to stand with me, and we will profess our faith and our belief in the happily ever after story that is true and that we cannot escape. Uh, through the reciting of the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this bread and for this cup. You are the bread of life, and so even as we take these elements into our bodies, would you make your way into our hearts to heal and to redeem, to resurrect and restore all of our sins and all of our sorrows as you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a, a eulogy for one who has died. And so we're reverent. This is also a eulogy for someone who is alive. And so we celebrate. 
The gospel gives us paradox. The kingdom of God is a paradox. He is making all things new. And so, come to the table as you're dismissed to do so from your rows. Eat and drink and be satisfied. But before we do this, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. The gifts of God for the people of God come as you're led to do so. Hey, serving with me? You want to?